I'm Vince. I'm R2. We're two middle-aged guys from the Midwest with opinions on RPGs. Let's get into it. We're going to ruin your games. Oh. Lore. Uh, what is it good for, R2? That's what we're talking about today. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Or, or apparently absolutely everything. But yes, our topic today is going to be about lore of the world. In Basically, this is true in any RPG. This isn't just a D&D thing. What do the characters start knowing, right? Or what can, can they know? What could they have access to? How much should they know about the baseline of the world that they are in, right? And I want to sort of start by just defining the problem statement, which is this. The problem statement that I have, and I think you'll be able to expound upon this well, is that the world that the players inhabit is generally not an exact duplicate of the real world. Yeah. And so some things are going to be different, right? Whether you're, I don't care if you're playing like vampire which is ostensibly set in like some dark, twisted version of our normal world, right? Or the layer underneath our world. Or you're playing Shadowrun, a, a sort of theoretical future, I'm putting that in heavy air quotes, our listeners can't see, right? Version of our world. Or D&D, which is like a, not really, it's a past. Like, yes, it's a fantasy setting and it has a lot of trappings of Earth's past, but it's obviously a completely alternate world with totally different histories and places and gods and everything, right? And so... You can, you can deviate a little, you can deviate a lot, but, but what I show up knowing is often very hard to put a box around. Yeah, right? and, and this is something that you'll have a varying degree of issue with, depending on what setting you're playing in. So if you're playing in D&D, and you're playing in Forgotten Realms, yeah. there's a lot of lore that's been made in that, uh, in that campaign setting over multiple editions, and for players who have been playing in that world, it's... Oftentimes you have the problem of the, the player knowing so much about the world that the, the characters exist in yep. that it's hard to pare down what to what a character would know in this small slice of the world. I think completely agree with you, okay? Like, you just hit on something so important. Like, I my mind is racing because there's so many different places I want to go with what you just said. So I'm just going to knock them out here real quick. Sure. All right? One, you mentioned the time, the time that some of these worlds have existed. Let's just talk D&D worlds for a moment, okay? Not only have these worlds existed for, in some cases, now 40 years. Like, Forgotten Realms is about to celebrate its 40th anniversary, basically. Yeah. Okay. wonder what $1,000 product wizards will uh, release for that. We can all look forward to it. Oh, boy. Um, but there's 40 years of products and lore and articles and things written by Ed Greenwood and other authors and... You know, there's novels and just lore on lore on lore. And, and the time frame in the world has advanced in jumps. Yeah. We've had we've had centuries of progress in this campaign setting over the years that it's been in print. Right. Sometimes drastically changing the state of the world and, and sort of resetting the lore expectations of what's going on. Right. And then you mentioned the other thing, which is that... What do your players in their small slice of the world have the right to know? And there I think you've seized upon the issue. Okay, let me say it like this. When I started playing D&D, 
1989. A number. Another summer. Get down. Sound of the funky drummer. So, I started playing D&D in 1989. And, uh, this may surprise you, but there was no internet. Okay? What I knew about the world was limited to things I had either learned in school directly or taken upon myself to go learn about through another source, usually by reading a book. And it was time-consuming to buy knowledge about the world, okay? Compared to now where... But I still had huge advantages over somebody in, let's say, your average fantasy setting. Sure. Right? You had, you had libraries where you could freely access these books. Right. You could go to a bookstore and get the, the latest editions while it was time consuming because of the sort of scarcity of information it incentivized you to hold on to and retain more of this information internally so that you didn't it if i read a book and it goes back to the library i don't have access to that book anymore so i better remember it right nowadays i, I have the internet i don't need to remember shit yeah i can just compartmentalize all of my knowledge right and that's just it so now where we live in a state where all human knowledge is available at our fingertips yeah. at any point in time, right? I don't need to remember the thing. I need to remember how to find the thing. But, and also, interestingly, all of human knowledge, some subset of that, is all of the lore about an imaginary world, yeah. right? <laughs> so, as a player, I have un just unbelievable access to the history, the lore of what's printed in these books, in these things, over the long history of what's happened. You know, we're looking, right as we're recording this, I'm looking over at my shelf of box sets. I'm very proud of them. I've collected them very dutifully over the years, never get rid of them. I have a bunch of Forgotten Realms box sets, but I'm looking specifically at Elminster's Ecologies, which is this incredibly nerdy, encyclopedic-like treatment of each of the major geographic areas of the Forgotten Realms. And it deals with things like the flora and fauna of that place. It's sort of comings and goings. It's histories. It's animals. It's The important plants. imports and exports of the Dale lands. Yes. Like, it is minutiae. Okay? But that was printed, and I bought it, and was very excited about it, and read it, and liked it. What GM that plays in the Forgotten Realms is going to be like, yeah, that's... I, sure, I have also internalized all of this ludicrous stuff, right? And that that's going to be essential reading for my campaign. If you right. don't know the primary exports of Shatterdale, mm, you messed up. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. And so you've got this real, like, asymmetry potential. And I want to break this down to categories. Let's, let's again return to our person in the world you mentioned. Yeah. Okay? Because we have this hard break between the person in the world I'm playing, who has some amount of limited knowledge, obviously, and me, who can read the words of God. And by that I mean, like, the narrator, the author of these books. Yeah, we have an omniscient perspective on the world that we're playing in. Correct. So, it seems to me like there's essentially four categories of knowledge here, okay, that your players could have. One is just literal, general, common knowledge, okay? That everybody should know as part of being alive in the world. How many moons are in the sky? How long are the days? 
what seasons are there and like if you are making your own world if you're not playing in an established campaign setting these fundamental uh realities of your world need to be communicated to the players right if you're if you have two moons in the sky and one of them is a perfect cube that is interesting information that should be communicated to the players like hey uh unusual thing about this world right if uh moon if your calendar is different if you don't have 12 months and 365 days in a year if you have some other method of quantifying time sure if seasons last multiple years sure sure a little game of thrones situation right these things need to be communicated to the players so they understand and and have sort of a baseline understanding of the world that they live in yeah Exactly. So that's that's baseline category one. The super commonest knowledge. Players should all be aware of that, and you as a GM should work hard to make sure they're aware of those deviations, right? Yeah. Okay. Category two are the things that they would likely know just as a result of whom they are and where they live. Yeah. Your average wizard in a given magical setting is going to have knowledge that most people in the world don't have, but that most wizards do. Right. How does magic work? How do you get spells? How do you prepare spells? What powers magic? What materials do you need for magic? What does magic look like? You know, are there any like that. Are there any forms of magic that are uh, black and white evil? Sure. Is necromancy a magical practice that morally stains the user irrevocably? Is, or, is anim- or is animating dead like, eh, it's a body. Yeah, right, or are all of ma- all wizards looked down upon? Or are all wizards held to heights? Or whatever, you know? Okay, you could picture all of that. And so I think that the the relevant part here, that's 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 sort of part two, right? Which is, part two is, is that knowledge where they are. By the way, you mentioned a class, but it could just as easily have been location. If you live in the Dale Lands... If you live in Shadowdale, you probably do know it's sort of exports and seasonal vegetables and, you know, who lives around where, like, oh, Elminster's Tower is over there, and so on and so forth, right? Like, that's not unusual stuff. That's just the neighborhood you live in. Yeah, and if you are if you have a character at the table who is, uh, for instance, a member of the nobility, yep. they have some information that should come naturally to them like regarding the politics of the region that they come from, political machinations of the capital, intrigue between noble houses. This is information that should be relatively commonplace for that noble perspective that the folk hero farmer would have zero access to. Right. And I think in that case, you don't need to shove all of that down the PC's throat. I think the actionable thing I would say about this one is... You can oftentimes just let the PC who is that thing define that thing if it's your own world or if it's something new. Um, so I think of like, uh, I mean, didn't the whole Whitehall thing and Critical Role, didn't that was all basically that player's creation, right? Not yeah. Matt Mercer's. Yeah, Whitestone, that was, part of, that was part of that player's backstory for Percy. Cool. I don't, I don't, uh, I, I never listened or, or any critical role thing, but I watched that fun show. It's we're, cool. We're, we're going to at some point. I think for, for the purposes of this podcast, I think it, there is some amount of D&D as performance art that you're going to need to take in to have an informed opinion. Oh boy. At any rate, so yes. Uh, so like, I think you can either do that, or if you're playing in the established world, you can show the player where it is and say, feel free, you can read all this stuff, you can know all this stuff, but if you don't want to do that, I know it, I've prepared it because it's something relevant. When you, when a question comes up, I as the GM, and I know you do this too all the time, 
and all what I'll say is you would know as a person of this race, class, yeah. background, whatever, you would know this thing. And a lot of times this this shouldn't be something that you gate behind a skill check. Nope. If you have a, a wizard in the party and they're asking basic questions on how magic functions uh, or how uh, a, a given bit of ritual magic uh, would be performed, uh, depending on what type of wizard they are, don't don't try to gate this stuff behind skill checks and deny information that's important to the story from the people who need it to, to push the, the narrative forward. Yeah. Now we come to story time. Break. Break in the... You, you've opened the door too beautifully for me not to walk through. Okay? So here we go. Yeah, tell the story about how I did nothing wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we played a game, a very long game. This this campaign you ran, it actually ran from level 1 to 20. Over which a couple is, of years. Yeah. It One was, of the longest campaigns that we've done in, in recent memory. Yeah, it was crazy long. And good. Like, it was a amazing campaign. Uh, I don't want to tell you about my D&D character, but I'll, I'll, I'll give the very briefest explanation of the story here. It was an alternate world, eighteen early 1870s... Like, Gangs of New York type of feel in yes, the world. Yes, setting. So we were, our story was taking place in New York in 1870s-ish, post some kind of big war, but it wasn't a civil war. Instead, it was a war where the... The existing government was uh, was plotted against, and a successful coup of wizards uh, wiped away the previous government and established uh, majocratic rule, the r- direct rule of wizarding people over the non-magical populace. Correct. The, the important things to note about the foundation of the story was we began the game as children, quite young. We were students at, at effectively, like... Uh, Hogwarts prep in New York, uh, you know, sort of. It was like it, Chilton, if you're familiar with Gilmore Girls, something like that. A a a very preppy, posh, uh, magical preparatory school. Yeah. To uh, to begin nurturing the minds of the next ruling class of this government. Yes, and very connected to the political leadership because many of the senior professors there also held senior positions in government and so on and so forth. And the other important thing to understand about this world is that magic wasn't just cast. It ran on mana, which was a physical thing. It was a liquid you actually had to consume to drink. But importantly, it wasn't just like mana bottles like you find in Diablo. It was much more horrible than that because everything in this world had a horrible underside. It was a terrible, radioactive, effectively destructive thing that was found in nature as a raw rock that when most people touch or come into contact with, they have horrible allergic reactions to and die instantly, like 90 plus percent of the population. A few percentages can actually interact with it, but no effect. And then less than 1% of the population can interact with it and synth- their bodies can synthesize it into effectively magic. Yeah, it's a sort of a, a, a world in which magic is effectively coal powered. Yes. You have this super dangerous magical coal in the earth that has to be dug up at great human cost and yep. refined. But at the beginning of the game, obviously, uh, to this group of, of early teens, none of that was apparent to them in the world, that this, these, these are sort of dark truths in the world that were hidden from their, uh, their relatively innocent eyes. Yes. So here we've covered the first two categories of knowledge, right? Because there were general things you told us about the world. 
Um, like, we know how, we knew the basics of how mana came from. It's, it's a refinement process. People work and pull it from the earth, and then it gets refined into mana that you can drink to make magic. And isn't that great? Yeah, exactly. Like, right, we get the spin version of it. We, so we know that's how it functionally happens. We understand the school, we understand the world, the country, you know, yada, 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 the government, all the basic stuff, right? Because that's just things everybody who lives in the world would know. Yeah. We were also all wizards. This is a party of all wizards. And we were all in wizard school, so we knew about the school and a little bit about magic and stuff like that, right? Um, we were learning. We were all neophytes, but that was a lot of what we ended up sort of learning about. Yeah, I'd say, honestly, the, the first third of that campaign was me trying to go through the sort of school experience, that education process, yeah. and gradually give the, the party more information on how magic worked. Uh, that education, unfortunately, getting cut short by events that occurred. Yeah. That then leads us into the third group, and I'll tell through this story. See, remember now, weaving together the narrative, the story, and the, the, the actual podcast. So, the third group are things you could logically know or discover through some kind of check. Like, it is known information, but it may not be immediately available. Okay. So where this lies is going to depend on the sort of technology and knowledge availability and centralization of your world, right? Yeah. Like in our world, a buying most knowledge has a pretty low check. It's taking out your phone and Googling it most, but not all. Like some things do require studies, research, stuff like that, right? To understand kind of how they ultimately function in society. A lot of, like, sociological truths and things like that, right? If I want to get the location of every McDonald's in New York City, I can do that relatively easily. Right. If I want to get advanced information on virological medical techniques, that's not something that I can Google directly and get a good understanding of. Yes, exactly. So there, the, the, there's sort of a bar here, right, that, that can move around based on the technology everything. And you can, you can imagine how sort of even some very basic things might, might actually have a quite a high check depending on sort of the time period, the technology, the capabilities of your setting, the education that's made available to people and so on and so forth. Okay. So in our world, we were students at a school, fairly highly educated. Like we did have normal classes, by the way, not just dumb magic classes. You, you, you rightly corrected the silly Harry Potter thing because we had like math, math. <laughs> <laughs> like reading and writing courses, you know, stuff like that. Not just how to be a wizard and make potions or whatever. But, and as we went on, you know, we would make lots of checks or, and or buy knowledge by sort of discovering truths about the world, yeah. right? Getting into sort of understanding how other worlds uh, aligned with us. Like a big portion of this game had to do with like the Fey world and the way magic was drawn from Fey and, you know, like... The, the interconnection of these two worlds that were uh, effectively at, at war with each other for time untold right and had now been sort of locked in this stasis and so on and so forth and and that's all stuff that wasn't it was knowable but you had to like there was checks that had to be done for it right it was it was you it was the party discovering this relatively fresh like uh, this was relatively untrod ground uh, right that this wasn't knowledge necessarily that was out there in books to be read this was knowledge that the, the party uncovered as they explored and, and had direct experience. Right. So 
Some additional things about the world we could know through checks. Some took, like, adventure. Some took discovery, research, so on and so forth. That's the third level of, of lore in the world, right? Where things aren't readily available, you've got to make a check. I think in most games, this is one of the trickiest areas to define. Absolutely. Because not only are you leaving a certain amount of uncertainty, you're allowing knowledge at this level, you are allowing the party to fail to get. Yep, yep. And drawing the line between group two and group three is really tough. Because a character, the elvish noble wizard, who is like the daughter of the queen of the high elves, right? And is now part of the party or whatever, because, you know, she's on elvish rumspringer or whatever, right? Elfspringer. Yeah, Elfspringer. You know is probably going to feel entitled to know quite a bit of things about the world in general, but certainly about, like, their own culture, their noble houses, their interactions with other peoples, uh, magical lore and things in general, right? Like, no, I am a highly placed, highly educated person from the smart, you know, from the smart people race, right? Like, that's how they tend to think. I know. I don't like the feel of that. I don't like it either. That's how high elves tend to get construed in, in stories, yeah, right? It's, it's true, yeah. They do get this sort of, like, weird master race kind of vibe. It's uncomfortable. But anyways, they... You know, but that's, that's like, often in the world, that's where that character feels like it's sitting. It's a highly educated, highly knowledgeable, you know, magical person who feels like they should just be able to know these things. Yeah. And it can be hard for the GM to go, mm, yeah, you don't know that, right? I think the draw of playing that sort of... That sort of character is, is having those I was there Gandalf yeah. moments. Yeah. Like I've I'm I've been around for three thousand years. I was I was there when the fuck up happened. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so I think drawing that line between two and three is really tough. And and again, especially when the players are reading the same books. It has the same information. That information in these books, in these world books were given, and this is true almost across the line for every game. Do not, like, actively delineate knowledge into the four categories I'm discussing. Yeah, the, right? it, it, it's rare to find a D&D book that says, this is the information for players. This is the GM. Don't, don't look at this information. Right. Sometimes you remember back in, like, some third edition books, and they still do this sometimes, you'll see those little sections. It's like, what can the PCs know? And it's like, you make little checks, and on this kind of a check, you get this knowledge, 10, 15, 20, whatever, right? You can learn these additional things. Okay, cool, great, fine. What about everything else in here, right? Is this all just fair game? Right. And and that's something that, that as players we need to be responsible and and try to try to be mindful and limit scope. Yeah. I, I think that to maximize enjoyment of this game, a lot of times you have to do the, the the immediately painful thing and and pretend like you don't know things in the world so that you have this moment where the character can have points of discovery. Yeah. And I think that's easiest when you are playing in something homebrewed where the DM is sort of, or GM is, is sort of revealing to you as you go. Like, like the wizard game, right? Yeah. But it becomes problematic when, as what happened in our game... At, through early levels, we were all, again, we were neophytes, we're noobs, we're discovering all these things, we're going along. We don't even know that necessarily what we're learning is so groundbreaking, right? Because yeah. we didn't even have, like, the context to seat that in, as would be true for P- 
people who stumbled upon this sort of thing in the world. Yeah, and, and you would have conversations with older, more experienced wizards who would basically blow off the information you were providing, not because it wasn't true, but because it wasn't believable to them. Right. And that put you that put the party in a weird position where they had relatively earth-shattering knowledge about the nature of how things actually worked, but it was, it was just ignored by those in power because it was inconvenient. Yep. So then, somewhere along the line, we end up becoming child soldiers. That's basically what happens. I mean, late teen soldiers. Uh, most people were 13 or 14. So that would literally be the definition of beginning teens, because the game advanced two years when this happened. Yeah, that is true. My character was like 16, so sure, I'll, I'll give that to you, as I had the oldest character. I, I ended at age 17. Yeah, it was a, it was a rough game. <laughs> yeah, it's dark. It's very dark. Anyways, we spend time fighting in this war. We defy the leadership. We get ourselves... I mean, like, I, I drag us on a mission to rescue my uh, fiancé, effectively. Uh, encroaching on foreign territories, ignoring national boundaries. Committing a number of international incidents. Correct. Uh, Killing a ship full of people. I I didn't kill everybody on that boat. I, the, the one person died. Drought. That was the problem. That happened. I did actually yeah, kill somebody you're, there. You're sinking that boat. Nobody else died on that boat. Yeah, get out of here. <laughs> I, I caused the direct death of one person. Uh, my character was very against causing death, by the way. He had a very strong moral center on this. Like, magic and, and you weren't supposed to kill other people. Anyways. So... We did all that, and then our punishment was, yes, we got sent to be child soldiers, effectively, and go fight in a, a massive war on the, on the frontier territories. We come back, and we've, you know, we've all been aged by what we've seen, of course, because everybody, I think, except one of us, had just, like, a horrible time, right? A couple of people had a pretty chill time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, not, for, for the most part, the party had uh, relatively harrowing experiences during this time skip. Sure. And we come back and we get involved into... Now Now we've sort of crossed the level threshold, right? Like, now we're in, like, the level 12-plus area. We're in the higher-level stuff. And now we're getting into category... Now we're bumping up against category 3 and 4 stuff. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the, this, the, the story transitioned from a small sort of school narrative to this war conflict. And now they're operating in... Uh, more esoteric political machinations yes and trying to navigate the intricacies and sort of brutal realities of real politic in this gilded age magical society right and like repeatedly somewhere in the like level 12 to 14 area i came to you and i was like what is going on how do we not know these things okay like we are powerful wizards at this point like, given there are more powerful wizards, okay? Like, this is a world of powerful wizards. But we're, like, 13th level wizards, okay? We're not nothing. Like, any one of us could just roll into the middle of town, and until the other wizards come to stop us, we would unstoppably be murdering people. Like, we are super... Like, we could easily go super villain. Sure. Like, we could pull a full-on dark side, okay? And just start, like leveling buildings all right hey you're very powerful sure and i'm like do we seriously know nothing about what all of this is going on like any political thing the nature of society who's doing what like are we just 
completely obtuse and all of that. And I wasn't arguing from my own character's point of view because he specifically sort of issued these things, right? Like, I, I was in no way pushing for my character to know these things. It was uh, a blessing to be the character I was who was able to be surprised by everything effectively. He just wanted to bake bread. He just wanted to bake bread. And marry his hot, rich girlfriend. So the... the but, but there are other people in this party who are involved in things, who are, like, theoretically tapped in, who grew up in the nobility or, or the majocracy, depending on sort of the time period of what it was. We had both representatives in there. Who should be more knowledgeable about what's going on, but they don't know anything. I would say that I tried to give people the information that they requested that they have access to. I see. It was a rough middle patch, is what I'll, I remember. I will definitely say that I, I recognize that while I did nothing wrong, uh-huh. if, if there was uh, a mistake that I made, it would have been not giving wider information on the political realities, uh, inter-house conflicts, and more fundamental information on how magic worked. Right, right. and Because and that, that's sort of information that, that should have been immediately more easily apparent to the party just through repetition and, and at this point, years of experience with casting spells. Right. Yes, exactly. And, and I, here's why this matters, by the way, because you, you, you might hear us discussing this, gentle listener, and think, who, who gives a hot crap? The, the answer is because it defined player agency in the world, right? That's what you're talking about here. The why lore ultimately matters is because when you know things about the world, when you can make assumptions, if I go over this hill, there is a fort. That fort is, contains friendly forces. We can find respite there, right? When I can know that as a character, because I looked at the map and was able to say, and I've been blessed to say, yeah, your character knows that stuff, right, or whatever, has those skills or that knowledge, it gives the player agency at the table to go, hey, everyone, I know we're rough. All we need to do is make it a couple miles that way and we can find some safety, yeah. right? It, the, the old truism of knowledge is power it remains true at the table. If you give your players more knowledge about the world that they're inhabiting, it gives them more ability to live in the world and respond appropriately to what, you, what you're putting out. It it gives them the ability not to ride specifically on the railroads of whatever you're putting in front of them. Right. And tier three knowledge still opens that door, right? The category three stuff where you have to make checks or, or do something, but you can get it. Yeah. Category four is, and this shows up in books all the time. We haven't actually mentioned what it is yet, but it's that sort of known unknowns. So in other words, it's the secret truths of the universe that like effectively no one knows. Right. It, it isn't the information written down as fact in the book. It's when you read the Forgotten Realms campaign setting and it asks questions yeah, yeah. about what things could be and then leaves it up to the DM. Yep. That, that, that sort of blank space, that, that gray area at the edges of the setting, the, the written setting material, has always been a great source for plot and story and, and it allows dms to interact with the source material creatively and add to uh, the, the ever-growing setting material yeah category four is like what 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 caused the mornland right obviously we recently finished a very long campaign where we we got into sort of some of the mix of what was what was going on there right yeah 
that's an open question. It doesn't need an answer. It's interesting. It's compelling. You can have 10 different campaigns with 10 different answers, right? And in, in Ebron. And I think that those kinds of things, that, that category four of knowledge, that stuff is things players can never have access to. Like, they, they can't know that stuff. They can have guesses, just like anybody else, right? But they, they're going to know it. The only person who gets to decide, and they can't make a check to get their way into it. You know, they can't answer the deep mysteries of the universe with a check, right? These are things that if they're revealed, they are the sole purview of the GM to reveal based on the actions and the story and the plot that's unfolding yeah. right there at that moment. Yeah, the answers to these these level four lore questions might be the thrust of an entire campaign. Right, right, exactly. And so I think we should wrap up here, but... What didn't we cover? What else do you want to say about lore? I think that one additional layer of lore, in terms of printed setting material, I don't think this really applies too much to uh, homebrew settings, but I think there, there is an additional layer of lore, which is multimedia additions. Like, to the degree that fantasy books or video games yep. are canon to the story that you're telling at the table. Yep. Because... If I'm playing in Forgotten Realms and somebody at the table is a huge R.A. Salvatore fan, he's sure. read, uh, read all the Driss Doerden books uh, and is a huge geek for that that series, how much of that is actually canon to my world, uh, it, it could be all of it, it could be none of it. Like it, That character could exist or not exist. It, it's a printed NPC and it, I think they... Is Driss printed in 5th Ed? Has I, he made an appearance in any of the books? I assume he's somewhere. He's got to be somewhere. Sure. Down a cliff somewhere. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully. But video games like uh, the old Baldur's Gate uh, yeah, sure. series that, that that dealt with uh, Baal, the, the god of murder. Yep. Uh, d the degree to which that story is canon is fluid. Uh, so I think that, that sort of pseudo layer two information is uh, an interesting gray space. Yeah, and people will bring their own expectations from that stuff as well. You know, we're about to go into a world here where we're going to have a D&D &D movie, right, coming back out. Yeah. And unlike the last one, even though this one seems to be basically the same plot again, uh, which is very funny, you, you pointed out that the plot in the trailer seems to be literally the exact same plot as the first D&D &D movie, just with, like, good actors this time. Uh, f future podcast episode there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that is set... One, one difference between those two movies is this one is most definitely set in the Forgotten Realms. Yeah. Like, you can see in the trailer some of the art pieces, like, reflected in the the background of the thing. Like, they are places in the world. Yeah. They are in known locations. So, you know, all of a sudden, the next time people play, they're going to be bringing, after they watch that movie, they're going to bring those expectations to the table. Yeah, exactly. And like a, a lot of those expectations will clash with mechanical reality. Like, uh, you'll if you if you have a new player who watched that watches that movie and shows up and is like, "Hey, I want to play a cool druid." It turns into an owl bear. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, as a DM, you should do the right thing and just let them turn into an owl bear. Obviously, because who cares? Who cares? Yeah, absolutely. They're gonna watch Chris Pine and be like, "I want to be a cool bard like him," and then you're like, "Well, I'm sorry, you can't be a cool bard right now." So. But anyways, that's a different subject. Uh, yeah, so that's lore. I hope we, we gave you some thoughts. My, I think my summation thought would be 
really make sure as the GM when you prep your players into the game that you provide them the, all of that like category one and as much category two knowledge as you can reasonably do. You can't stuff it down their throat. Players only read so much. But where there are big distinction between your world and the base assumptions, make those well known. And allow the players to just know stuff without checks if it fits their background, species, class, lived experiences in the story that they've brought to you. Yeah. Uh, my last bit is that these layers of lore uh, don't just have to be come up, uh, came up with by you. If you have, particularly if you have a good ability to, to improvise and respond to the reactions of the players, let players have a hand in establishing some of this information in the world. Let them come up with NPCs that they would know. Let them come up with baseline realities about the world and if it doesn't clash with what you're doing, yeah, just let it be. Let it be real. Let, let that be a cool addition. Let there be some interactivity on this sort of stuff. Totally agreed. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Don't forget to rate and review five stars. Do all those appropriate things on whatever uh, podcast app you're listening on. If you're interested in finding more uh, about don't for, uh, about us or whatever, don't forget you can always email us questions. The email is down below. You can also uh, check me out on YouTube if you're into Warhammer and that kind of thing. Uh, I've got a channel under my name, Vincent R. Venturella. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.